Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing none other than the prolific scholar of anti-racism, Dr. Ibram Kendi. I mean, this this episode is so fire. I learned so much. He's just a brilliant mind. But before we get to Dr. Kendi, I wanted to talk about this week's special election in Ohio, where Chantel Brown will now replace HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge. First, I want to congratulate the Congresswoman-elect Chantel Brown. As some of you all may know, I endorsed my close friend of almost 20 years, Nina Turner, in the race. Now, occasionally on Twitter, I do things that upset y'all, and this was one of them. I want folks to understand that a part of politics is that the friends that are there for you, when there's an opportunity to support them, you stand with them because they stand with you. But as important here is acknowledging the very real progressive movement that Senator Turner helped lead and how it's changed how we talk about politics in the country. You don't get this police reform movement without them or the pressure to end the filibuster or the mainstreaming of canceling student loan debt and Medicare for all or these massive investments in climate change that we're about to get or the eviction moratorium or nearly four trillion dollar investments we're going to see through reconciliation without the progressive movement that she's been center of for a long time. So I tip my cap to my friend and note that in primaries, friends are often on different sides, happens all the time. But the real culprit that we have to keep our energy on is making sure that we control Congress again, not the various factions within the Democratic Party who occasionally feud. Let's keep our eyes on the prize, y'all, and that's getting the mega bills through Congress and then take a hard pivot to these justice issues that when we need Democrats to deliver on so they can actually run on something in 2022 and earn the right to be in the majority again. Congratulations again to Congresswoman-elect Chantel Brown. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with Dr. Ibram Kendi. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Man, this is a great episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I have my brother with me, Dr. Ibram Kendi. What's going on, my friend? Hey, man. I'm so glad to join the show. Man, what's going on in life now? You know, we start each one of our episodes by asking our guests to walk us through the arc of their career. And for a young guy like myself, but you've written five books, you've taught, you're an editor at The Emancipator, you've pretty much done it all. Talk about the moment when you decided that scholarship was your calling, and what was it about Black Studies that drew you to commit your academic career to it? So when I was in graduate school in a master's program studying 
for a master's in African-American studies. And I was sort of going back and forth between whether I wanted to be a, a scholar or whether, whether I wanted to basically report on racial issues for, you know, a magazine or, you know, a newspaper. I started learning about those Black student activists of the late 60s, early 70s, and the role that they played in really conceiving of Black studies. And, and they really inspired me to just want to join this field and ultimately become a scholar. So uh, talk about The Emancipator, your newest collaboration with the Boston Globe. What is it and why is it necessary? And shout out to my good friend, my uh, Miss Myrna White, Saida Grundy, uh, over there at The Emancipator <laughs> as well. You, you tell Saida, I say it was happening. No doubt, yes. Yeah, Saida certainly helped us to to get it off the ground. So really the idea of Akari was sort of came out of being inspired here in, in Boston by those anti-slavery newspapers, uh, which emerged in the 1830s in particular. And those early editors realized that they needed to, that they needed a, an outlet that specifically studied and, 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 and spoke out against and, and allowed the, the American people to sort of understand really the intricacies and even the evil. Uh, thereby, you know, slavery. And and I, I think that many people thought that they were crazy to imagine that one day slavery could be no more uh, and that a newspaper and that truth and that science and that persuasion and that logic could, could help sort of move the nation towards that place. Uh, but I guess as a scholar, you know, I believe in, in science and in truth and writing, you know, in scholarship. Uh, I, I believe in, in in the power of sort of journalism and, and and the written word. And so I think we were just inspired to to imagine something new, to imagine, you know, a newspaper that would seek to study and examine and really call forth for another type of nation, a nation where racism no longer uh, exists. I mean, that's powerful when you think about the role of journalism and even more importantly, local journalism and even yeah. more importantly, local diverse journalism. You know, before we get deeper into your scholarship and uh, The Emancipator and your work around anti-racism, I didn't I'd be remiss as, as a fellow HBCU grad. I didn't ask you <laughs> how your time at FAMU shaped your orientation towards your work and laid the foundation for it. But talk about that a bit if you can. So I think on so many different levels, it, it sort of shaped my work personally, culturally, socially, and even sort of professionally. I, I, I think that coming, I, I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, and pretty much in, in an all-Black neighborhood. Most of the schools that I went to, uh, particularly in middle school uh, and, and, and elementary school, were, were almost all-Black or majority Black. And then I moved to Northern Virginia when I was a sophomore in high school and went from this majority black school to a majority white school in, in which my blackness uh, was was first and foremost as opposed to my individuality. And, and mm -hmm. so I think when I went to FAMU, which pretty much everyone was black, <laughs> uh, I was able to sort of learn more about myself, not necessarily feel as if I was a representative you know, of a, of a race and also be able to learn more about Black people, right? And now just incredible diversity, you know, Southern Blacks and Northern Blacks and and and, and Black folks from the Caribbean and Africa and light-skinned and dark-skinned uh, and different ethnicities. And, and that, I think, really guided sort of 
my worldview. And then, you know, obviously, I, I think being a journalism student, there were many newspapers and, and media organizations that were like, hey, we want to recruit some some great Black students. So we're going to go to a <laughs> an HBCU. So we got particular opportunities that I know students at, Black students even at, at Florida State down the road weren't receiving. Mm-hmm. You know, at Morehouse, one of the things that I realized is that those individuals who who studied journalism, who who wanted to to utilize that as an impetus for change, learning from many of the the local uh, black newspapers from back in the day that you mentioned yeah. that were the, that that were your influence, uh, have still turned out to do the same work today, and it prepared you so much uh, for the journey ahead. I'm interested though, as we go into your scholarship, you became a household name with your writing around anti-racism in your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, for people who may be less familiar with the term and what it means, what exactly is anti-racism and how can someone be anti-racist and who was the audience for that book? So when I wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, I specifically tried to not have an audience in mind as I was writing, because Mm. when we write books on race, if you write the book, let's say for for white folks, it's going to be written differently than let's say if you write it for Black folks or Latinx folks. And so I did not. I I, I felt it was important even too for Black people to think about whether they were being anti-racist. Um, and so mm. I, I wanted to not necessarily racialize the audience. But in reading back through the book after I wrote it, I actually think the audience of the book were actually Black people. And, uh-huh. and I, I really, because um, most of the book is set in Black spaces. There's so many different things uh, and stories in the book that I know Black people, particularly my age, uh, can relate to. And my journey as, as someone who originally thought, particularly when I arrived at FAMU, that the problem was Black people. And then the election of 2000 <laughs> told me maybe that's not the case. And, and, and ultimately... You know, I was able to realize, no, you know, the problem is anti-Black racism. I, I think it's a journey that that some Black people, you know, can can relate to. But in many ways, I think white Americans and, and, and non-Black Americans more broadly looking into that sort of conversation I may have been having with, with, with Black people, on some level, at least from what I'm hearing from them, it allowed them to be less defensive and to really consume the work and even be very self-reflective because they knew... They weren't necessarily the intended audience, or I wasn't necessarily lecturing to them, just as I wasn't even lecturing to, to Black people. I was really lecturing to myself. I mean, that's kind of wild, because when I wrote this, when I wrote my book, which, you know, doesn't really uh, hold a candle to yours, two different scopes, but yours was, was, was just a very special book, will always be. You know, I, I was writing my book talking to Black women, and I could mm. feel that in my and the reason being is because my experience had me speaking to a group that was the backbone of the community, not normally spoken to, but also were the impetus for any ounce of political change. And so it was like this this urging of thanks, but also trying to woo them to do that much more to create the change, because that's where we always rely. And weirdly enough, you, you know, the summer of 2020 sparked demand everywhere for your work. And uh, even a skeptic like me, it felt at the time that we were seeing more American institutions acknowledge their particular role in perpetuating inequity and to do something about it. 
but I think that moment has passed and we're back to business <laughs> as usual yes. as a historian. Talk to me about the windows of opportunity to do things about racism in this country, because it feels like we're already backsliding back to having our collective heads in the sand once again. Well, I mean, I, I think certainly the windows of opportunity in this specific window was 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 shutting even almost before it even began. I mean, I think it's I think we can certainly remember the the tens of millions of of, of people of all races and backgrounds who who took to the took to streets across this country or were reading books by by, by black authors and other authors on you know on on race. But I think it was what two to three days after the demonstration started, you know, in in Minneapolis, uh, you know, against the murder of of George Floyd, you know, the president, uh, the former president, was already calling those demonstrators thugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of July, he was already calling them anarchists. You know, by the end of the summer, he was already stating that there's this massive uh, problem of, of of cancel culture uh, that's. Uh, you know, taken root, um, and and all the while, you know, arguing that that Black Lives Matter was destroying this country and anti-white, and and of course, simultaneously, you know, in the lead up to the election, there was the really open assault against the 1619 Project uh, by the <laughs> creation of this 1776 Commission, and I'm, I'm mentioning this, Bakari, because you know, as we were striving to progress this nation towards a more equitable and just place. Simultaneously, those who were trying to maintain inequality were were actually pro- trying to progress this nation to towards a more racist place, and both were happening simultaneously. And and obviously, the movement, uh, the demonstrations against police violence and and and, and racism, were more prominent. Uh, mm-hmm. In in the summer, but obviously by this spring, the other movement uh, became more prominent. <laughs> but let, let's talk about that for a minute, because I feel like the conservative campaign against critical race theory is a direct response to last summer, as you stated. And the demand for the work you've done in this space uh, around anti-racism. First, for our listeners, and let's because sometimes I have to walk people through this, Dr. Kenny. So let's, let's walk them through it. What what is an actual definition of critical race theory? What is it? And can you explain to people why this whole manufactured drama around it is so wrong on so many different levels? Well, first, um, well, critical race theory can be defined or Kimberly Crenshaw, who was one of the sort of coiners of the term, recently defined it as a way of looking at the law's role platforming, facilitating, producing, and even insulating racial inequality in this country. And and critical race theory emerged in the 1970s, particularly the early 1980s. And and, and the reason why it was sort of one of the major and most obvious ways for us to prove that this was manufactured uh, is because I have been pinned as one of the founders uh, or even the father of critical race theory. And, and you're and like, no, no, that's not even that's not even my thing. That's not me. And what's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, because, you know, some point to the origin of critical race theory in 1981. I was born in 1982. 
<laughs> um, and and by all accounts, of course, critical race theory emerged among legal scholars and lawyers. They focused on the law. And I'm a trained historian. My degree is in African-American studies. I didn't train at law schools. Um, but what I think what what these propagandists did is they took the term critical race theory and then packed it with meaning that the critical race theorists didn't recognize. <laughs> and that meaning was that this is a theory that says that all white people are inherently permanently racist and evil, and that's what they want to teach your kids. And so we're fighting to, to, to not have that be taught uh, to your kids. And critical race theorists are scratching their head like, where did this come from? <laughs> <laughs> so, Kenley, let's talk about them in tandem then. So let's connect the dots. What uh, between what critical race theory actually is and anti-racism and why the two are important to be understood in tandem when we're untangling the fundamentally racist nature of this country. Sure. So, so critical race theory, as I mentioned, primarily examines the law mm-hmm. uh, and, and the law's role in maintaining racial inequality despite there no longer being, let's say, racial language in many laws uh, or the laws that are leading to racial inequity or injustice. But there are scholars in other disciplines, sociology, anthropology, history, uh, you know, you name this sort of discipline who are also studying the persistence of, of racism either through the law, but taking a more historical approach or sociological approach or or cultural studies approach, or even through theory and narrative, uh, or through power. Uh, you know, my I wrote a book on the history of anti-Black racist ideas, in which I wasn't necessarily looking as much as at policy or law, as much as the ideas that substantiated and justified those laws. And and so anti-racism is is a, is more broad in, in in that there are multiple forms of of anti-racist thought, and certainly critical race theory is. Is, is, is one of them because critical race theorists do not maintain that the problem is, let's say, Black people. <laughs> they maintain the cause of our inequities and disparities are the law, our policies, our practices, which need to be examined and changed. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. 
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Something else I wanted to talk about with you, which I felt was very important, uh, was the difficulty that many American politicians, including black ones, have in saying that America is a racist country. I feel like the myth making is central to how Americans understand our history, um, particularly around race. And the omission of America's racist past is still a hard pill to swallow for many Americans, despite overwhelming evidence affirming what's a basic point. Uh, for black folks. Why do you think stating the obvious is so hard for many Americans when we ask this question? And for me personally, I say the answer to the question is yes, but then I also say that America is not irredeemable. We just have to reimagine what she looks like. Well, what's striking about this is, uh, you know, you you have the very same Americans who say that the United States is is not racist, you know, as a nation, We'll, we'll turn around and say, you know, a nation in, let's say, Africa or, or Latin America or, 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 or Asia or somewhere else is a poor nation. <laughs> and then you ask them, why, why are you saying that it's a poor nation? They'll say, well, there's, there's widespread poverty. And so when we respond, there's widespread racial inequality in this country. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, and so thereby, that makes this nation racist. In other words, that what makes a nation, not the United States, but a nation racist, is if, if, is if it has widespread racial inequity and injustice, which is caused by its policies and practices, which are substantiated and even normalized by their ideas, just as what makes a nation, let's say, poor is there's widespread poverty, <laughs> which stems from its policies you know, in practices or even colonial policies and practices. And, and so to me, it's, it, this is not a, an ideological contention. You know, this is, this is a sort of a scientific fact. And so when people claim the nation is not racist, I ask them, so how do you define a nation as racist? So we can examine this nation as well as other nations, but they don't want to do that. Mm. So let's get your take on January 6th then. And if we, I think that's a natural a natural segue. I remember so many people saying this isn't America and we're better than this. And as the son of a historian and a civil rights activist and an African-American studies major myself, shout out to Dr. Barksdale at Morehouse College. Uh, the opposite is true. This is exactly who we are. And we're not better than this because it's who we've always been. Can you place into historical context the history of white mob violence and how central it's been to maintaining perceived racial order? And weirdly enough, all of this ties into this. There is a common theme of critical race theory, et cetera, because people didn't even know about Tulsa until Watchmen was on Netflix. So just talk, talk about January 6th in context of it all. So in, in the slaveholding South, when enslaved black people who were whose slavery is, was maintained by violence, decided to organize a slave, a slave revolt, uh, typically a white mob was raised or what was called a militia to put down that slave revolt. When black people started uh, 
running away and, and, and growing the ranks of, 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 of the free population in port cities like, like Philadelphia and Boston and New York, by the 1820s and 1830s, they were growing these small black enclaves and they faced white mob violence. <laughs> uh, when, when, when black folks, uh, after the end of the Civil War, started uh, migrating from rural areas to Memphis or even New Orleans, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. faced white mob violence in, in 19, 1866, which ultimately led to the first Civil Rights Act of 1966, when Black people used their 15th Amendment to vote in the late 1860s and 1870s, uh, they faced white mob violence to, to stop them from voting or to strip them literally of political power as what happened in Wilmington uh, in North Carolina. When Black people migrated from those Jim Crow areas where they couldn't vote, uh, where they couldn't make a living, two towns like Tulsa, two, two cities like Chicago and Detroit and Milwaukee, by the 1910s and 1920s, they faced the Red Summer of 1919, which was a series of, 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 of white mob uh, violent attacks. And, and ultimately, the worst, one of the worst being in Tulsa in 1921. And on, and we can come up to this day. And, and actually, one of the major distinctions between then and now, and I actually wrote a piece on the Atlantic you know, on this, is because of the assault rifle today, you can have a, a basically a white mob of one. And, and we've seen that in recent years where you have a, a white supremacist who has, a, who has an assault rifle who decides to walk into Walmarts and, and shoot, you know, the American people. I mean, we've seen that in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, exactly. Where you saw that, saw that happen again. Trump is gone, though. But the wild part is that Trumpism, it kind of, it, it still exists. And the politics of white grievance are still here. Can you help listeners understand how central white grievance is to American politics and particularly conservative politics? Because I think it's now a core identity in American conservative politics that shapes everything else they do. So I think in order for us to understand the politics of white grievance, we have to understand some foundational ideas that lead to it. The first idea is that this nation is post-racial, that that racism (laughs) doesn't exist. But we elected a black president. What are you talking (laughs) about? Exactly. And that demonstrates it. Uh, (laughs) Despite uh, the the Tea Party that organized, you know, against him within weeks. But uh, so that's the first idea. And then the second idea is that despite there being all these so-called race neutral policies that provide equal opportunity for all, the quote, government is helping out those people of color at the expense of, of white Americans. And, and, and so now we as white Americans, these theorists would say, are struggling, you know, to make ends meet. Uh, but the government isn't helping us, but corporate America isn't helping us. They're helping those people of color uh, who are also then turning around and saying racism exists <laughs> and, and there's a problem here. And so, you know, it, Within that sort of ideological scenario, it's it's not difficult to convince those white folks that the cause of their struggles uh, are the government, uh, are corporate America, uh, are people who are crying out that the problem is white racism, you know, are people of color. And, and, and that sort of they're able to generate these white grievances when in reality, the cause of their struggles 
are some of the very policies that are causing people of color to struggle, <laughs> but of course, struggle even more. Mm. So what do we do about it? I mean, we, we've spent, you know, the 75%, 80% of this show, I got one more question after this, talking about uh, defining anti-racism and critical race theory, talking about January 6th, talking about the, the massacres, which I hope people actually go back and look at how Lake Lanier was actually created. It was devastating. But let's talk about how do we become affirmatively anti-racist? What does the future look like? What is the playbook for this country? Well, I think there is, at a policy level, I think there has long been this belief that we have to change minds first before we can change policy. And you certainly have to change enough minds to win a policy, sort of to, yes. to, to, to bring into place a policy through a campaign. But that's all you really need to change. And, and once a policy is put in place and it helps people. So you, you can have many white Americans who oppose, you know, the Affordable Care Act. But once it's in place and it's actually helping them and they see the difference in their lives, they can actually start supporting it. And so I think we have to be very focused on, on instituting anti-racist policies that will drive down racial inequities and disparities and allow even people uh, who oppose it because they think it's not going to help them so they can see it's actually going to help them too, while simultaneously actively trying to shift the narrative you know, among the American people that the cause of your pain are people who don't look like you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can organize together and fight together, you know, for a just and equitable world. That sounds ambitious. It is. <laughs> but as you know, we come from... We come from uh, uh, people of dreamers, and, and right? people, yes. Yeah, that, 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 I was thinking through, I was like, how do I describe that uh, beautiful... Uh, we need, I mean, that, that actually you sounded a lot like Barack Obama in that. But we can't leave without you talking about your newest project, your podcast, Be Anti-Racist. Why a podcast? It's going to be the best or second best podcast out there behind mine. And how can we all <laughs> listen and support it? Well, I mean, I, I it's certainly a new endeavor for me. I'm not I'm not on Bakari Sellers level. Um, <laughs> Whatever. But you you but, you but you do have to work with Saida regularly. So God, God bless you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So she, she she keeps me sharp and smart regularly. Um, but I think it's really to be able to just sit down with people and really dig deeper onto issues. There's so many people who are experts on specific forms of racism. And, and I really wanted to provide a, a platform for those people to really talk about these different forms of racism, you know, affecting different sectors of society or even different groups of people, because there's a tremendous amount of expertise on this topic. Scientists and scholars have been studying it for decades, and I really want to translate that scholarship in science for everyday people to understand so they can have those tools to change their society. One of the most amazing things about you, Dr. Kendi, and I wish I was a student in your class, is that you're able to take these uh, very complicated ideals, these kind of larger themes, and able to make it possible for us to chew on them, um, for us to have some sustenance as we move forward. It's been a pleasure um, to uh, introduce to my listeners and to interview on this show one of the greatest scholars of, of my generation. I was born in 1984. And uh, and, you know, my father helped start the African-American studies department at the University of South Carolina, and he loves yes. you as well. And so 
God bless you. And I tell keep I going. I hope to, I will. I hope to be one day a, a half a good a writer as you, my brother. So have a, have a blessed day. Oh no, your book was great. Thank you so much for it. That means All a right, lot. Brother. Thank you. Have a blessed day, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Before I let you go, I wanted to send a shout out to Missouri Congresswoman Corey Bush, whose courageous stand in protest of the eviction moratorium lapsing forced Democrats to do the right thing. In case you missed it, once it became clear that the eviction moratorium would lapse, Congresswoman Bush staged a sit-in on the Capitol steps where she slept outside for days, dramatizing the effect of the moratorium lapsing. The Biden administration and the CDC responded by extending the moratorium. Now, some folks would argue that it shouldn't take that much to do the right thing, but in Washington, it absolutely does. And as someone who works on a lot of justice issues, I can tell you that nothing gets Democrats in particular to move like a bad news cycle where folks raise the obvious questions of why would Democrats allow this moratorium to lapse when we knew it was coming and right when the Delta variant was raging and while corners of our economy still seek to recover. I get the moratorium can't last forever, but letting it lapse now was premature. And Cori Bush, to her credit, saw it and did her job and led the movement to get the administration to move. And cheers to her for being the conscience of Congress and the country on this. And that's that on that. We'll see all of you guys on Monday.